Hey team, it's Ando here. 2022 is a big year for Australian rugby, and we at Pick and Drive Rugby want to be in the thick of it, but we need your support. We want to attend post-match press conferences to ask your questions. We need more interviews with players and coaches to give you the insights that you want into the game they play in heaven. And we want better recording equipment to create a superior listening experience for you. If you like what we do, and let's be honest, even if you don't, please consider getting involved and sending us a tip. All donations will be put straight back into the podcast. We do this for love, not money, but every little bit counts. So please go to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby. You can give us $1, you can give us 5 whatever is within your budget, we would be incredibly appreciative for. Thank you for your support. Let's get back to the pod. Australia. Quake Cooper for the win. It's on its way. It's on its way. It's gone. Quake Cooper is the man. Hi there, and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, where diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family friendly, and positive. Get involved. Now, it's just me, your host, Mitch, tonight. Ando is away on holiday, so he's not with us. But I do have a guest joining me very shortly. We do have Nelson Dale from the Draft Rugby Podcast lined up to chat through Bledisloe 2. But before we get into the content tonight, you can find us on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Do search Pick and Drive Rugby, and we should come up on there. Do give us a like and a follow on there. Let us know your thoughts and comments and questions every week on The Locker Room, and we'd love to hear from you. Now, we do also have the Super Brew Tipping Comp that has wrapped itself up this week with the last weekend of uh, Rugby Championship action. Well done to Scrum Doctor, who's taken out the yellow cap this week on three and a half points, followed by Jumping Tim Slim in second place, also on three points. And Ando, he's not here to celebrate his victory, but he came equal second as well this week with three points. Well done. Ando. Now, if you look at the overall table, Boat Race Captain has taken out the competition for the Rugby Championship this year. Well done, Boat Race Captain. Uh, 214 points all up, or um, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, followed by Julia Mather, who's dropped down into second place. So well done, Julia. And then followed by Scopey Brumby's fan in third place. So well done to everyone who has got involved there. Um, <clears throat> do keep an eye out. We will be doing and renewing the Super Brew Comp for the Spring Tour later in the year as well. Now, what are we doing tonight? We do have the Rugby Championship Round 6 wrap-up coming up shortly. We will chat through Bledisloe Game 2. We'll also briefly touch on South Africa and Argentina before we dive into the locker room and answer your questions. Um, very much looking forward to chatting through the game this week. Looking forward to chatting with Nelson from Draft Rugby. And yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. All right, time to talk some rugby now, and we will dive into Bledisloe Game Two. I am joined tonight by Nelson Dale from the Draft Rugby Podcast. Nelson, how are you, mate? Look, surprisingly well. Uh, I'm doing all right. I was a bit shattered the last couple of days, so thankfully you've had enough time for me to move on and, and look towards the future. 
Yeah, we are recording this on Monday night, so it's not straight after uh, Bledisloe 2. I think if we were recording uh, Sunday, Sunday night or even Saturday, Sunday morning, Saturday night, it would have been a, a much darker and more glum result than we're going to try and be upbeat and, and chat through yep. the result. But for those who didn't catch the game, and if you are listening to us for a bit of a play-by-play, it's probably not what we're going to do tonight. But for those who didn't catch the game, the result was 40 points to New Zealand, 14 to Australia. Uh, not quite the result that the Wallabies were hoping for. Uh, yeah, not, not a result that we were, can really be that proud of either in a lot of regards. But uh, Nelson, what were your initial reactions after watching the game? Look, I, the game probably went closer to what I thought it was going to the week prior. You know, I, I think leading into the Bledisloe, I thought we had so many disruptions, we had so many injuries, and I didn't really have, you know, high expectations. Uh, that changed after Bledisloe won. So going into this match, I got my hopes up again, thinking this <laughs> this could be something special. And that lasted about one minute. You know, the kickoff, Kellaway, then uh, making that hit, Holloway making the line break, and then, you know, it was pretty glum from there. And my initial reaction is tear up the entire team. I don't know if you saw my, my Twitter post. I think I wrote <laughs> a whole new team. It was very much tongue-in-cheek. I don't think I'd be picking that for for Japan, even for Australia A-side. But, um, no, I think I, I, was, I was pretty heartbroken, pretty heartbroken. But... There are some some glimmers of hope that I think we can we can look towards as well. Yeah, and I think you um as you were saying there that after the result of Bledisloe one on Thursday last week, we were all, you know, leading into this game and sort of thinking, can the Wallabies bounce back? Can this be that game where we we buck the trend of twenty twenty two and we don't go for a win loss, win loss, win loss? That they're gonna they're gonna be up for it. They Dave Rennie had spoken through the week about how there was intent to go out there and put in a good performance how they were using the disappointment of Bledisloe 1 to really fuel them for Bledisloe 2 and unfortunately as we will get in into it was more of uh the wallabies we've come to expect of just a bit of a shamble really of what ended up happening on the on the field and yeah um how the game ended up playing uh so i think one of the biggest things to talk about initially is that yellow card to uh Jed Holloway in the second minute of the game. Now that really, in a lot of ways, I think typified the Wallabies performance this week. We've spoken about, and it's been spoken about so much around needing to improve the discipline, but that second, second minute, two minutes into the game and we give away a yellow card like that. What were your initial thoughts around that incident? And how did you think it overall impacted the Wallabies? Look, my, my initial thought um, was a little bit of outrage, to be fair. I, I, I get this is a very black or white situation. You you tip a player and you're getting carded. And, and to be fair, you, you go off that and he, he deserves a card and, and I have no arguments there. The, the thing that confuses me a little bit about it is there's an actual law in the law books that say your head cannot be below your waist if you're pilfering a ball. And I think this is the first time I've ever understood why that is a law because uh, it, Papa Lee, I think it was, hands on the ball, going for the ball. He has Wilson sort of lift a leg, and he decides he wants to keep going for that ball, keep fighting for that ball, and actually hooks his arm, keeps himself low and his upper body low. So no matter what was going to happen, if you're trying to lift him and clear him out of that position, he's he's going to be tipped over. 
Um, the issue that I think came for Holloway was he then, once lifting him up, he then tries to step forward, trips on his own player, and it <laughs> looks like he drives him into the ground. And honestly, I, I don't think it was intended. I, I think the situation around it created that situation more so than any intent to do anything wrong. But and I think Harry sadly, Wilson played a big part in that as well, in that he was he part of the lifter. And he kind of, yeah, definitely. when he realized that they were in the wrong, you can see his facial expression. He goes, oh, and he throws yeah. his hands up like, I haven't touched him, which then causes Jed yeah. to drop him. And so it's like, yeah. you, if you had both just brought him to ground, it's probably play yeah. on and we're not looking at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of yeah. a naughty schoolboy being caught. It's it's always going to be carded there. And I mean, like, you can't argue it. But it is, it's a funny one. I've never understood that rule. You know, your head can't be below your waist, but this is the first time... Looking at a match, I went, geez, that's why you can't do that. And that's never been pinged in terms of what the attacking player, you know, guy attacking the player is doing. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. And it's one of those things, I mean, consistency in, in refereeing is something that as fans we've always been asking for, yeah. particularly this tournament, but for the last few years. And that hit last week, the uh, group, was it, that lifted up Fayengar and, and dropped him from a fairly similar situation? That was, if it was reviewed, it didn't necessarily look like it was reviewed in some ways. But uh, last week, the referee just said, let's play on. We're not looking at that. And then this week, it's a yellow card. So there's there's frustrations there. And you could hear that from the commentators yes. as well. Stan Sport was saying um, around that, that they didn't think that if last week it was off the hook, then this week it, it should have been um, adjudicated similarly. But, you know, different referees approach different things differently. And the Wallabies do need yeah. to be better there. Um, one of the one of the themes of this game was ill discipline from the Wallabies. They gave away so many penalties. Um, they gave away two yellow cards. It's something that Dave Rennie has spoken about in the post match presser. What are your thoughts around how they can sort of right the wrongs and sort of fix up the sort of hole that they have found themselves in in terms of their discipline? Look, I think a, a large part of it potentially comes from leadership in your leadership group. And I think I'd, I'd never really considered um, Hooper a brilliant captain. He's, I've always thought he was a brilliant player, lead from the front, all that sort of stuff, but I never really appreciated his ability to, to deal with a ref, which I think is something that grew over the last you know handful of years, last few years. I, I think right now when we've got Slipper trying to manage a ref early and he's the most ping player in the <laughs> – in the, the <laughs> tournament, and then we have White deciding he's going to be captain later on in the match, and and that means he needs to argue with the ref, and he needs to have a dig at the ref, and, and things along those lines. It it means situations that could be 50-50 become you know 70-30, 80-20, where we're getting these penal like penalties, and our opposition isn't, and I, I think we just can't value, you know, a, a a people manager, a ref manager you know, more than we really need to right now. So I, I think I'd be looking within this group to say who's the, the guy that can manage the ref and, you know, get us in better terms with referees moving forward. So we're not always that target. It is a bit of a puzzle. And we see here as fans thinking and talking around who can be that that captain who's going to have a better reputation with the referees. And from Super Rugby, we look at Alan Alatoa as a good example of yep. one captain. Uh, but we have seen in the this year as well that he has captained the Wallabies at parts when Slipper went off and it didn't seem to, he didn't have a different 
relationship with the referees than Slipper was having, or it didn't seem to fix things in in the Wallabies' favour. We do, I do feel like we are in a bit of a hole at the moment. That for whatever reason, yep. the World Rugby referees seem to think that we are a team that either plays with bad tactics or is willing to give away penalties, and so they adjudicate that way. Um, and I guess if you ask any South African fan, they'll say the reason is Nick White taking dives left, right, and centre. But there, it is it is a difficult situation, and I don't really know how we can fix that before uh, the spring tour later in the year. Yeah, look, I, I honestly think it, it has to be someone different. You know, the, the captain clearly has to be a fresh slate, you know, some, someone starting in that that role for the first time. You look back at someone like Richie McCaw and his documentary and, and how he, he discussed, you know, managing refs. It starts long before a match. You know, it, it starts with your first interaction with refs. Does the ref think you're respectful? All these things build up to that point. And there is no way that a ref will now see white like that. You know, those, those little interactions. I don't think a ref will see someone like Foley like that, you know, taking kicks behind the, the back of the ref when he's telling you to wait and have, playing off all these little games with him. I, I just don't think people that are in those roles now can, can manage the ref properly. And I don't know who it is, but it needs to be a fresh voice mm-hmm. and they need to, you know, come out and say, we're making a change with how we're doing things. And it needs to be public. The refs need to hear it. And we need to have this fresh late and, and you know, fresh start. And we could see that this week when we talk about Nick White. I think he'd been on the field for a minute or two and the referee was already giving him a warning that if you talk to me like that again, you're going to go straight back off the field. Um, it is yeah. interesting. It'll be interesting to see if that is a, a focus for Dave Rennie in the next few weeks before they lead into the spring tour. Um, and if there is someone that springs to mind that can be that replacement captain. Let's get back to this game. Let's talk about some of the players. And it's probably going to be hard to talk about players from an Australian perspective. But overall, were there any players that really stood out to you that had a really great game for Australia or for New Zealand? Look, I'll, I'll name a few on the Australian side of things, which is you got to dig a little deeper. But uh, I think um, Pete Sam is definitely one of those for me. He got a, a few turnovers in, in really key moments. Um, he, he ran 40 metres off 70 carries. He got a tackle bust and offload. He had that try assist being in the right place and, and you know making the right decisions and, and made 11 tackles. I, I think he is a player for mine that, you know, he's growing into his role. And, and you can say off the back of last week and, and, you know, such a terrible match really for for the Wallabies, I still feel he's taking a step forward. So he, for me, is is someone that had, you know, a, a positive game. I think the other two kind of Aussie names, or at least maybe one Aussie name you can throw out there was, you know, Fuenga had a really positive impact when he came on, even though it was brief and he didn't have a lot of impacts. He he got involved and, and tried to lift the energy and and then Nick Frost as well getting that charge down. Just little kind of things chipping away and, and building a bit of, you know, momentum for us that, you know, players on the field for 60 minutes didn't seem to to have as many of those little impacts. And you could see just the impact that he had once he scored that try from that charge down by by Frost. He was just telling the players and you could see him saying, let's hurry up, let's get back there. Obviously, yeah. we're not going to win the game, but there's time. there's still time to score some points. And I think that's the kind of play that we needed at that time. The heads were starting to drop. Definitely. We scored a great opportunistic try, but outside of that, yeah. heads were dropping. Uh, belief was down. No one was really leading. Um, and so you, to get a player like Van Gaar on and just say, you know, we're back in this. 
let's keep doing what we're doing. Let's get back to halfway and let's kick off and let's get back into this was what did spark them. Yeah. Um, I also thought Valentini had a great game this week and, you know, he's really cemented himself as that number eight for the Wallabies. Uh, there, there was questions, and I will ask your opinion on this. Harry Wilson did start the game at number eight and we haven't seen a lot of him uh, for the Wallabies under Dave Rennie. Do you think he did enough to answer the questions that Dave Rennie's sort of been asking lately? Did he do enough to push Valentini back to that six jersey? I don't think so. I'm a huge Wilson fan. I think something that was clear in this match is, is we lost the physicality battle. And I think one thing he did add with ball and hand was, was some physicality. But I, I don't think he you know gets enough involved enough in rucks and breakdowns and has physicality throughout his game um and yeah for him to to earn himself a starting number eight jersey when mainly the things he's doing ball in hand he better carve up because he's not adding some of the other things that i think um you know back row combinations should be adding so i'm a huge fan i i don't think he's there yet i think he needs to take a couple steps forward still i'm I'm happy to see him get another chance at some point and you know i'd, I'd love to see him actually get australian a time rather than just one game in the, the Wallabies. But, yeah, I think he's still got a few few work-ons. But, geez, it's not an easy game for you to, to change, you know, yourself back into a, a starting jersey. And it's a bit it, – it's typical of the Wallabies' performance this year in that we've gone with the injuries that we have. Last week was probably the best performance we had from our back three. But it wasn't yep. – like with, with the odor at six – uh, Wilson, uh, not Wilson, uh, Valentini at eight and Samu at seven. But Wilson, uh, Leota gets injured and so he's done for the year. Again, through injury, yeah. we're forced to shuffle those combinations and try and bring in someone else. And it's it's frustrating as a Wallabies fan to sit here at the end of the rugby championship. We had We had spoken leading into the rugby championship about, you know, we've got certain jerseys that we want to nail down, 15, 2, 10, uh, potentially nine in some ways. Who is our best nine? We've probably got more questions now at the end of this championship around who is our best uh, number nine. It probably is Nick White, but Jake Gordon did things differently than what White was doing, um, which yep. has raised more questions and will be interesting to see how Rennie handles that moving forward. Uh, but again, injuries. We've now got other positions that have come up that we don't know. And when we start running through if it, if the Wallabies were playing in the World Cup final tomorrow and we had a team to pick for that, we probably got three or four numbers that we could confidently pick and know that they were going to perform to the level that's required. Uh, yeah, it, it's really frustrating. What were your thoughts around uh, Dave Parecki at number two this week? Look, I think Parecki's building into that role um, at different parts. He's, he's, you know, he showed he, he can be a ball in um, hand threat. Um, a, a yellow card definitely can change your perceptions a little bit. He, he, he deserved that yellow card, but I mean, what was he to do in that situation? Really? I mean, I mean what can he, you do? He right? Basically. <laughs> yeah. He's basically left alone trying to stop a, a driving mall of, of basically a whole all blacks team. But look up, uh, Although he didn't have huge impacts, he made, you know, nine tackles. He he was involved in the game in those sort of smaller, tighter areas. Um, it wasn't a standout mat- match for him. But I, I think he is evolving into a really good, safe option at um, at hooker. And, there, I mean, there's still some other players that can knock that door down, whether it be, 
you know, Latu or Brendan Payanga, Mosa or Fanga getting another start. There's still people knocking at that door, but Trekkie for me looks like the the current starter. Now, if we shift focus across to the New Zealand team, we there's yep. a lot of names that we could be saying that that stood out. Who's the first one that jumps to mind as the best player in the All Blacks jersey this week? Mate, like it's it's mainly because of his shift in position, but it's it's Geordie Barrett. I mean, Havili's been very good for them at 12, and this is injury-forced, but um, there's been talk about it for, for a long time. Can Geordie be their 12? And I think he proved that I mean, he definitely can, in at least against the Wallabies. Um, <laughs> he ran 81 metres, seven tackle busts. He had four offloads. He made all his tackles. Um, he was a real threat. He just turned a pace. His decision-making and things, I think, was really quite solid as a 12 as well. And he's a, a really, really solid boot, you know, one man out from the 10, which is a really big positive as well. And he played 65 minutes with a cracked head with blood streaming down the front of him. <laughs> there was one I, point in the second I was, half. I was going to say, there's one point like in the, the second half where there was him. more blood on the Wallabies jerseys than, and I think it was Barrett's, than, it, than there was nearly gold. Yeah, there was there was a fair bit of uh, Barrett Claret. I was calling for him uh, to be sent off for a blood bin multiple times, just say so he wasn't on the field. Or HRA. Would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, had to be an HRA. He's clearly got a head knock. Yeah, exactly. Don't know how that one got missed. Uh, what were your thoughts around uh, Bowden Barrett at 15 and Richie Moe at 10? Look, it's it's actually not not something I'd be doing, and it's not something I love. I I, I think there was points throughout this match that, positive you know they've got the the dual sort of kicker role dual sort of pivot role but I I don't think it adds the balance they need I think it was a game maybe that flatters that combination because the Wallabies defense was quite I don't know disconnected disjointed at at different points Um, I I think they come up against a more physical team and that you know 10-15 combo doesn't look as good Um, I, I don't think it's the right balance really for mine yeah, and I think um, we've been multiple pods. We've been Ando's been talking about it on our pod for a while, and I think you guys have been talking uh, on your pod as well about shifting um, Will Jordan back to fifteen. And we were kind of expecting this was probably the game to do it. I mean, the Bledisloe's won the rugby yep. championships there for the taking. We've got players all are playing out of position due to injury, forced from last week. When is Ian Foster going to make that decision? When are we going to see? Will Jordan play 15 for the All Black? I feel like it's not, I mean, it's not coming before the World Cup, unless there's some drastic changes, because if they're not doing it last week and in having the class of, say, Bowden Barrett on the bench, I in a game like that, I, I can't see when they're going to do it. It's almost like a trick card that we're going to get to the, the quarterfinals or the semifinals of the World Cup next year, and he's going to pick him at fullback. And hopefully, whoever the All Blacks come up against he has a shocker and he's not used to it and the whole system falls apart. Um, that's what, as an outsider, we can sit here and say it will happen, but. <laughs> but it won't. It won't. He'll, he'll carve anyone. He will. He looked at, uh, it, was a, it was a one thing I noticed very early on when, uh, I think it was the 21st minute when Fichetti goes off with the injury and we make a decision that really made me question Rennie more so than I think I ever have in the past. We brought Pattaya on to 13 and we shifted Ikatao, who has not played professionally at 12, into 12 against the Bledisloe, the All Blacks and the Bledisloe at Eden Park. And it took, you know, less than 30 seconds or less than a minute or something for Will Jordan to, to make um, Geordie a, 
Pattaya look like a goose. <laughs> like he's just he's so good and he's just got so much class. It it really doesn't matter if you play him at wing or fullback, he's gonna have such an impact for you. But I I'm just confused how who I think is the best fullback in New Zealand, hands down. And you know, the a, a true out and out fullback doesn't even get a chance at a at a point like that. That's right. And so that's I mean from the outside again, it's head scratching why that decision hasn't been made yet. And we don't know when it will. Maybe in the spring tour they'll get the chance when they come up against some of the weaker nations to to test those combinations. But it, it is it is a head scratcher. And I mean, he's got such a skill set that he can insert himself into games everywhere, similar to Corabetti, who when he goes looking for the ball, he yeah. gets it and he makes things from nothing. But just imagine what he could do if he gave was given the time and space at fullback. Um, it's probably a good thing that we haven't seen it. And let's just, let's just wait and let them put that off as long as we can. Um, you spoke about it a moment for the Wallabies with Fakedi getting injured um, early in, was it the second half or uh, late in the first half? 20, 21st, 21st minute. 21st minute. So, yeah, about quite early in the first half then. That's one of the big moments for the game and that sort of shifted the Wallabies uh game plan and what ended up happening what were the other big moments from this game that stood out to you well look i I think we touched on one one was that um holloway yellow changed you know perception of how we were going to win this game by not getting cards and and not giving away silly penalties and then that forketty injury you know 21st minute when nil all we've you know we've fought through that yellow card and defended on our own line and then Within six minutes, it was 17-0. So I, I think that's hands down the biggest moment. Um, and, and I think that was a failing on Rennie's behalf in that decision. Um, I think you could much easier slot a Hodge into to 12 and try to, you know, work a little bit off him rather than shift that whole backline dynamic. But the other one that I, I think was a missed moment was the uh, the Severo-Reese head clash. Mm. I mean, every day of the week we've been watching that. That's That's a red card. And... I mean, that doesn't bring the Wallabies back into the game, but that's a, that's a pretty big moment that can change a bit of momentum in that time, and um, it didn't get reviewed. And we're sitting here, it's Monday night, we're recording, and there's been no uh, sighting for that either. Like, I don't know how the four match officials missed that. I was sitting in my, on my couch in Sydney, across the ditch, watching it on, a scr- on the TV, and I heard it, and the, the head contact made this loud crack. And that's what drew yep. me to the, the contact initially. Went back and watched it. I'm like, that's clear head-on-head contact. How have they missed that? Now, the ball did play yep. on for about 20, 25 seconds before there was a stoppage. And I was expecting them in that stoppage for the TMO to come check, check. But it never came. And I just don't understand how it could have been missed. I think the biggest failing out of it is, was it Hodge that had the head clash with him? It was, yeah. I think the biggest issue is we complain about people like Nick White milking a penalty and then something like this happens. And Reese Hodge knows if he doesn't stand up, he's getting sent off for an HIA. So yeah. his mindset is I need to get up. He's not going, I need to get a red card. He goes, I need to get up. And, I mean, that's showing failing on, you know, our system to protect a player because a player will want to play on. But I just, it's baffling that we don't want people to milk things and then we let that go. It's it's insane to me. Yeah, there was a few instances as well. Uh, I think there was another breakdown a little earlier on in the game where one of the play, the, or I think Bowden Barrett charges in and makes head contact um, with one of the Wallabies players again. That doesn't get looked at. And 
we won't spend a long time talking about the officiating in this game, but it did feel like there were times when what the All Blacks were doing was one thing, was say um, scenario A, the Wallabies would do the exact same thing and it's pulled up immediately. Uh, the Wallabies were hot on attack early in the first half and they end up getting a, a clean, a, a turnover um, from the, they were on the right-hand side and we were, the cameras on the other side. We can see clearly that Whitelock comes in from the side and scoops the ball up with his hand and the referee blows the penalty for not releasing on the ground. And it's like, what do you mean? He's not illegally allowed to attack that ball. Um, and if that yeah. happens the other way, it's just completely ignored. Yeah, and I think that comes back to what we touched on earlier. You know, refs and they have a very strong preconceived idea of which is the better team, which are the better players, and who are going to be able to you know toe that line and get away with things. And, and sadly, at the moment, it's not us. And I, I think that is a humongous difference between us and the All Blacks. And and that's something that over this rugby champs has has deteriorated. And I mean, that's to me that explains a lot of those fifty fifty calls. I guess we'll we'll talk about now <clears throat> where to for the Wallabies. So the rugby championship's over. New Zealand has won. Uh, we now go on a tour of well Australia A go on a tour in a few weeks to Japan, and then we've got the spring tour. The Wallabies don't play until the thirtieth of August. So there's a little bit of time off. Um, what do you expect the Wallabies to do in that time to get ready for the spring tour? Look, it's it's a difficult one. Uh, I mean, we've already seen an article, and you know, Rennie saying that changes are going to happen. And I mean, it's it's something where a lot of these players in the Willoughby squad must be nervous about what's happening moving forward. I think it starts with you know, it starts with some leadership change. It starts with a couple big calls. Um, it, I don't think we you know throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and start and get a whole new side, but. There's a couple of changes that need to happen. Um, I, I think Slipper has shown, you know, glimpses that we love Slipper, but he's he's too penalised. Um, do we see someone like Bill come in and get a chance or do we see someone like, you know, Robertson or other people earn their way in through the Australia A Tour? And and I think that Australia Tour is hopefully going to answer some of those questions for us. And, you know, it's Vunavalu, Frost, all these guys, Donaldson. Do they do enough in a three-test series against you know a, a japan 15 side that they can force their way in because i think there is an open door there for a few of these players now um and, and yeah I, I don't know where we start but if it's not leadership it's probably going down the wrong path if you were to pick a new wallabies captain for that first test i think it's against scotland currently from who we know who's available obviously we can't take into account the form of australia a. it hasn't happened yet but who would you be picking as wallabies captain it's tough. Uh, to be fair, like off the back of things we've seen in the past and leadership we've seen in the past, it probably is someone like Alan Alatoa. He's got experience. He's been there. He's done that. But then we also have the question mark about him versus Tupo. And that's, you know, that throws a different issue behind it because if we're, if we're backing someone now and they do make some positive changes, we want to have them going through to the World Cup. And if it's a player, we don't know if, it, if they're going to start for the World Cup. There's, there's an issue behind it. But you know, if, if we're looking at people that are definitely going to be starting, who do we have? We've got maybe Valentini. Um, we've got <laughs> Silent Ikatao, you know, and Kellaway. And I, I'd, I'd be surprised if one of those three get the role. So for me, if Ala Alato is starting, he's my captain for, for Test 1. 
if Hooper somehow turns up and works his way back into a starting side, even if he's on the bench, he's probably the captain. Um, it's just got to be something different. I, I don't know. Who who does your gut tell you should be the captain for that first test? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, I, I'm leaning more towards Alan Alatoa as well. And I've, I've said previously on on various podcasts that I like the the selection of Alatoa starting with Tupo off the bench, just the impact that he brings in the second half. Um, so I, I could see Al Alatoa being named as the Wallabies captain. Um, I mean, another player that currently is starting that could potentially, he's got experiences, Parecki. could see him potentially yep. getting called because um, I would be surprised if Dave Rennie gives Fangara another shot at the starting jersey straight away, um, considering we've just seen Parecki come back. Uh, Callaway is not a bad shout either. He's been in and around the system. He's got a fair bit of experience. He's played in a few different super sides now. So I could see him potentially being a good option. But again, with Callaway, we don't really know yet what his best position is. Is he a fullback? Is he a makeshift center? Is he a winger? He's kind of Mr. Fix-It like Reese Hodge. The, the positives about those last two names, Parecki and Callaway, is they come across quite respectful. You know, they don't seem to make excuses when they have interviews. They're, you know, they're having positive interactions. We're never seeing these negative interactions or, you know, losing control and, and getting agitated and upset on the field. And, and maybe that's two really strong positives for those guys, you know, putting their name in, in, a, in a potential role for, for captaincy or vice-captaincy. There was a funny point right before halftime in this game where, uh, they've got a pen. I think they had a free kick from a mark, and Kellaway goes to kick it, and he just turns to the ref and he's like, "Do I have time? Yeah. Like, <laughs> are you, you going to yeah. ping me if I don't kick this out?" Um, I thought that was quite, quite cheeky. But he handled that quite well. And, like the thing about it was, it wasn't a disrespectful way of doing it. It was going, "I, I just want to make sure I know I have time. Is this okay by you?" And that's how he's presented it to the ref. And you know, some refs probably could uh, take it as a, you know he's being a bit of a smart ass, but he didn't come across like that. You know, he, he definitely presented it to the ref. Like I'm just wanting to make sure we're, you know, abiding by the, the laws you want us to abide by. Yeah. I did see an article come out sort of highlighting that. And I, I actually interpreted that situation of, he was just trying to figure out if I kick this out on the full, is it end of the half or do we go yep. to the line out? And I think that's actually what he was, was talking about more so than are you going to ping me if I don't kick this straight away? But exactly. as a salty Australian fan, you've got to laugh at that. Uh, when the players take yeah. that opportunity. So on that theme of what happens now for the Wallabies, one thing that we've seen in these last two tests, Bernard Foley has made his return to the Wallabies uh, quite unexpected in a lot of regards. He had a great game last week. This game was probably one to forget. Does Do you think that he features for the Wallabies on the spring tour? Has he done enough to sort of qualify himself over uh, Noel Alessio for selection? Look, I think he had, he's, at the moment, looks like he's probably got to go on tour. Um, if we've got no Quaid, um, Jock's out as well. Um, you know, we've got we've got a couple of people missing. Lolisio probably has to be the starter for mine after these last two tests. So I think we saw some really good moments from Foley. He's still the Iceman from the boot. <laughs> um, but he missed an average of 5.5 tackles in the last two weeks. And I'd be surprised if he made five tackles combined in the, the two matches. So. <laughs> I, um, he's a bit of a speed hump. He's kind of how we remembered him for the positives, but also for some of those negatives in terms of his defense. Um, so for me, uh, I think he could potentially go on tour because we need some numbers. Yep. Um, and I don't think we're, we're bringing Edmund 
and Donaldson expecting both of them to get a run. So uh, I think he, he does go on tour. But you you start Lalesio. You have uh you have Foley there if we need him. But you could also potentially bring Hodge off the bench to cover that ten role as well. So do you expect him to get uh, much game time, Foley? Do I expect Foley to get much game time? Uh, look, I I think Rennie Rennie did voice that he was very impressed with Foley early on. I, I still think there were some positives to take from his match um, from the weekend. So it, it all depends on does he believe those positives outweigh his drastic issues in, in defence? Um, for me, I don't think they do. Um, I think he's someone that we could call up at a match during the World Cup um, without him from now to then, and he's going to play the exact same if we gave him 80 minutes every week for the rest of the, the Northern Hemisphere too. I, I think he will fill a role if we need him there. And I don't think he's going to improve by getting more game time there. So I think Lolisio is the one who should be starting. Lolisio should be getting, you know, every start and 60 minutes, 70 minutes with, you know, a Hodge backup or something along those lines. We're probably also going to see Beal at some point on the tour. Uh, and, you know, if he's on the bench, he's a person that could fill that role as well. So I, I, I don't think we'll see a lot of Foley. At least I hope. You hope not. And so if the Wallaby squad was being a name tomorrow... For the World Cup was being named tomorrow. Do you, with the expectation that Karevi, Cooper, um, Hooper, all those, all of our top players are available, does he scrape into what the 35, 40 man squad for the World Cup? For me, no. Uh, I think we can, we've got room for an experienced 10, and that is Hooper, James O'Connor, who's not really in the, the reckoning at the moment, or Bernard Foley. I don't think we take two guys that are over 30, haven't played much footy with us for, for recent years. But I think we've got the old bloke. I think we've got Lolisio. We've got, you know, Hodge that can do backup. Maybe we have um, Beal if he, if he does well throughout the back of this. Um, and at a stretch, we, we throw in a younger guy as well, um, but probably not. That's probably the guys filling the role. I, I, I don't think we see Foley and Quaid. Yeah, okay. So we might have seen the last of Bernard Foley in a Wallabies jersey. Look, I think we might get minutes, minor minutes out of him. But you know, if we're if we're being honest, is Quaid going to make the World Cup? The the guys played what fifty six minutes this year for the Wallabies. Is is playing you know second div in Japan? Can we rely on him if he turns up and misses a bunch of games early next year for the Wallabies before the World Cup? I mean, there's huge question marks there, and I think that's really the reason why we see Foley at the moment is Rennie doesn't think. He's taken Quaid definitely to a World Cup because Quaid can't last a couple games in a row. So he wants some experienced tens there, and he's going. Who are my other options just in case Quaid is injured? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I can see um, why Rennie's doing that. I've got a question. I've got a question off the back of that. Like, I mean, we threw out the names like Hodge. Um, We've been talking earlier about White. The the thing that some of these players have in common that we didn't have throughout a lot of last week was. We didn't have a long-range kicker on the field. I, I, by the point that we got to 17-0 in that, that test match, we could have been 17-9 if we kicked three of four kickable penalties from a long-range kicker. One of them would have been very easy directly in front. You throw in, you know, um, Wright's really dumb quick tap. You know, we could have had five attempts at goal if we had a long-range kicker. One of them was very easy, um, but you had to have done that first. So. 
I think we have to have a long-range kicker on the field. For you, if you had to pick one in your starting side, who would it be? Who's the, the long-range sniper in, in the starting Wallowie side? Jeez, that's a tough one. I mean, <clears throat> off the top of my head, to we've got Reese Hodge as yeah. the longest in probably the Southern Hemisphere. Outside yeah. of Reese Hodge, who Nick White shows that he can kick it from halfway. Um, I'd probably start Whitey, I think. Yeah, as he brings that versatility uh, and just that kicking game. Look, I, I, I'd probably be on the same wavelength, and if that's the case, geez, I hope we see White kick some more long distance kicks. We're not banking <laughs> off one kick that he's done. He's going to do um, it again. Going into be our long range kicker who might need to kick two, three, four long range kicks in a match. So, yeah, it's interesting. That is an interesting point you brought up as well around the sort of decision making from the Wallabies in this game. There was, particularly in that first half, there was a number of times where they did get a full-arm penalty in the 22 or at least the All Blacks half, and they butchered each and every opportunity. They went to the line once, um, and that was granted. That was during Parecki's yellow card, so they didn't have the option of taking a scrum. But they went to the line out once, and Pete Samu threw it in for that quick play that ended up Corabetti standing out and uh, not scoring the try. But there clearly wasn't someone from the Wallabies who was putting their hand up as captain, which you would have expected Slipper to be doing and saying, this is what we need to be doing right now. Tom Wright taking that quick tap was diabolical. We took that another quick tap right in front of the goalposts, like five meters out. Granted, we can't take a scrum. We don't have a hookup, but just take the three points. You could have thrown it over. I think that's where I think that's where the issue came, you know, like. By that point, we could have had three attempts at long-range penalties. You kick two of those, we're only at six points. Six points, 17, you go, yeah, we'll take one of those easy kicks. We'll slow down that time. We've got someone in the bin. And all of a sudden, you're 9-17. You're just over a try down before half time with that barrage we faced in that first half. So, look, I, I think there was a lack of leadership making those decisions, but I also am baffled by the decision not to have a long-range kicker. The, the two times the All Blacks have lost in this um, rugby championships, both teams took penalties every opportunity they were there. They kicked every single thing, every opportunity. You know, both the um, Pumas and the, the Springboks kicked bucket loads of penalties. And we just pass up these opportunities in that match like they're going to be nothing. And then we're, you know, we're, we're so far behind and you know, we, we're not willing to kick penalties to get us back in. Yeah, it is a head-scratching head uh, game plan. And we, had, we could see from Argentina's victory over um, New Zealand earlier in the year, that scoreboard pressure really is one of the only ways that you can start to make the All Blacks question what's happening and and question themselves. If you were within five or six points of them, they start to give away penalties. They start to make the wrong decision. This team isn't as composed as All Blacks teams we've come to expect in the past, and they do give away those penalties, and that's when they're vulnerable. But if we just give away opportunities left, right, and center and don't actually put them under any pressure, we make them look a lot better than they are. And this game, unfortunately, we didn't do anything to make the All Blacks, to really trouble the All Blacks, unfortunately. We scored some tries at the end of the game to take away their bonus point and and make the score look a little bit more respectable. But realistically, the All Blacks by that point had switched off. Do you have anything else you wanted to say around this game or should we move on? No, I'm happy to move on. Cool. I think we've been talking about it long enough and we're, we're trying to remain as positive as we can. But yeah, <laughs> There are a few questions that have come in from the locker room, so I'm sure we'll um, have some points come up yeah. a little bit later. 
Now, the other game that did see out the rest of the rugby championship was the South Africa victory over Argentina. The final score was 38-21 to South Africa. South Africa needed, after the All Blacks and Australia game, South Africa needed to secure a bonus point to take out the rugby championship. They fell short. They weren't quite able to do that. Um, winning 38-21, they finish in second place on the rugby championship. I haven't actually seen this on Twitter, and, and correct me if you've seen it anywhere, but there's no South African fans that are bringing up that decision by Renal to overturn the decision uh, for the Wallabies last week, which cost us Bledisloe 1, which in some ways cost them the rugby championship. Well, look, I, I saw them prior to this week uh, having a bit of a whinge about it, but I think um, a lot of them were just overly excited that, you know, White and his team didn't win. <laughs> so I think they, they let that slide. But then there was, you know, a bit of outrage going, geez, Wallabies, you had one job to, to give us a crack at this. And then, you know, it was, it was out of out of reach realistically before that match started. And then they didn't even get the bonus point. So, I mean, you, you can't rely on other outcomes. You know, they lost two matches in a six-test match series. You know, it's it's always going to be a little bit tough. And, you know, that probably didn't do enough in the chances that they had. Now, did you get a chance to watch this game or have you seen the highlights? What were your initial thoughts from it? Uh, look, I didn't really get to see a lot of it. I, I think something that I found interesting again was Argentina, you know, put up a bit of a fight for I think it was 60 minutes or 60-odd minutes um, before it got away from them a little bit. And uh, I think that makes sense when they've had, you know, three yellow cards plus a fourth in the back end of the game you know, against a, a Springbok side who admittedly didn't run them, you know, around the field very much. There wasn't a lot of ball in play in this match. You know, they, I think there was 600 run metres compared to like a 1,000 in the the, the other Bledisloe. Um, so, look, I, I think that fatigue sets in and, and, you know, South Africa are good enough to, to break away at the end there. And that if we look at... Uh, Argentina's overall rugby championship performance. Like they've got to be really proud. We've we've come to sort of expect Argentina to be making up numbers and maybe push one team uh, and make them fight hard for a game. But realistically, this year, like re- this has been their best year in the rugby championship without a doubt. I mean, they've beaten, yeah. they've they've trounced Australia, they've beaten New Zealand, and they weren't pushovers in either of their games against South Africa. They did push them all the way to the end. Um, Yep. But again, it comes down to discipline and it's something that the Wallabies struggled under Michael Checker in 2015 and under his tenure. Are we starting to see those same types of, I guess, decision-making or um, the overemphasis on emotion and, uh, you know, that uh, raw feeling that the players have where they get out into the game and they make these silly decisions and they give away penalties and they give away cards that, you know, you can't do it at test level because the opposition will make you pun- will punish you for it. Look, I, I think the interesting thing about of you know all of, all of that you've just sort of summed up well is you know Checker is an emotive coach. He turns up and he gets the best out of players in a short amount of time. And you know, leading into the World Cup next year, he's, he's probably the best person I reckon in world rugby they could have brought in uh, to get him to that point. And you know, we know that Argentina are really emotive like emotional team then they thrive off that and you know sometimes that means it gets out of hand and and this weekend you know four four cards is probably a perfect example of it getting out of hand for them you know some some stuff can be marginal but 
you can't get away with four cards. Um, but I think they have to thrive on emotion, and there's a there's a fine line between those two. But we know that the Pumas have been card magnets in the past, long before Checker turned up, and there's individual players there that have been card magnets for for quite some time. So I don't know how they find that line. I think it's quite different to how the Wallabies need to find that line. Um, but they need to work off emotion. They just need to know how to control in certain certain times. And that will be a big work on for Michael Checker over the next few months and leading into the World Cup next year is how does he keep this team fired up, playing with passion, so they come out and they want to absolutely break blokes, but at the same time they're not overstepping that mark and they're not giving away high shots or um, silly yep. penalties for not rolling away and just repeating, repeatedly frustrating referees to the point where they're giving away these cards. Um, yep. I guess overall... I've seen some of the highlights for this game, but didn't get to see a lot of it in, in detail. South Africa looked good. They scored their points when they were on offer. Um, they would be disappointed they weren't able to come away with the bonus point. And I think, you know, 15 minutes to go, the, or the Argentinians are within three or four points of them. So they didn't make it easy for them. But South Africa did get some some late points. And uh, Malcolm Marks, again, doing what he does and just being an absolute pest around the field. And I think he's shown why he needs to be the starting hooker for the Springboks. One thing that I thought was interesting out of this when you, you scroll down to the stats as well is, you know, neither team really ran the ball a lot. You know, both New Zealand and Australia were running over 100, um, 100 times throughout the match. In this, we had South Africa only running 76 and we had the Pumas running 92. Yet the missed tackles were still really large. We had 17 missed tackles for the box. And we had 21 missed tackles for the Pumas. So. There's definitely some question marks, I think, for, for both of those sides. And, you know, it was, you know, South Africa loved to play a physical game and slow the board down at certain opportunities and play field position, do that sort of thing well. Also, I mean, those, those tackling, you know, numbers aren't great when you look at how many missed tackles there have been as well. Yeah, that's right. And um, it, it is interesting because we've got the two, out of the four nations in the rugby championship, both South Africa and predominantly Argentina have their players playing Northern Hemisphere. So we've got Australia yep. and New Zealand playing a Southern Hemisphere style of football. And in some ways, the referee or their um, the way they structure their game plan and they adhere to the way the game's refereed is different to the way that South Africa and Argentina have been able to do that. Um, yep. So, yeah, it is unique in that way that we've, we've, we're probably the only competition in, the, in world rugby at the moment that has that mix of nations playing from two different hemispheres within the same competition. And this year has shown that, that gap has closed. This is the tightest the world rankings have ever been. This is the tightest that the rugby championship has ever been. So I can't wait for the World Cup next year. Really, on anyone's yeah, day of the top, the nations in the top 10, anyone could, could beat anyone. Yeah, look, I, I think the biggest thing is there's a lot of teams that you'd say probably won't win the World Cup in that top 10, but there's... Every one of them can be spoil sports for pretty much any team in, in that comp, you know. So I, I think it's definitely tighter than it's been. Um, to still go and win a quarter, a semi and a final is going to be very, very hard for a lot of these teams. But, they've, you know, the, the top teams are going to come up against three teams that could beat them on their day. So I think it's going to be very, very open. Fantastic. Well, let's leave the games there. We have had a few questions come into the locker room. So we'll dive into that now and we'll answer our fans' questions. Go. Cool.
All right, time to enter the locker room now and answer your questions. Now, the first one comes to us on Twitter from Christy and Willie K. And not really a question, more of a statement. Uh, they were there at Eden Park on the weekend and it was awful. Well, well done, Christy and Willie, if you were both there. That's, uh, that's, that's tough, going to Eden Park and, and supporting the Wallabies after knowing that they haven't won there since 86 or something. I had a bit of a chat to him, private chat to him, and he said he was an absolute cracker. Like, he, he loved it and he'd go back next year. Um, but there was a lot of hostility in the crowd. Some people very, very humble. Some people very, very abusive. Really? But he also had Kiwis walking up to him, buying him drinks and giving him a hug. So there's <laughs> some positives there as well. Oh, so it's not as bad a venue as it's sort of been led to, as everyone's been sort of making out over the last few years? You know, I think will have to get there one day. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Next question comes from John Shadlow on Twitter. Given the All Blacks have Eden Park, where we have never beat them since 1986. What is Australian rugby doing so different or wrong uh, that we don't have a similar ground? Even at our home games, there are nearly more uh, all black South African, English, name any team you like, supporters there than Wallaby supporters. Look, I think there's a combination of, of things there. Look, I, I think Suncorp is the closest thing we have to that. I mean, Perth, we're pretty solid as well. But Suncorp, you know, the, the fans turn up. We we have a great success rate there. I think one of the big issues is rugby isn't as big in Australia as it is in New Zealand yeah. in terms of percentage of the population, and we have huge amounts of English, South African, and you know Kiwis and things living in Australia. So if they're passionate rugby fans, they're going to turn up, and sadly it means if the Aussies aren't turning up, they're going to turn up. So I think a bit of success might help you know change that a little bit. So I'm I'm voting a pretty much every game at Suncorp moving forward. Now I've got to ask you, what is your record like attending Wallabies games in person? Now I thought that I was the deciding factor in that Brisbane test in the second test. I hadn't been to Suncorp for a Wallabies test before, and from memory, I think it was the last five or six tests that I have actually attended in person. They lost, um, so I was there in Brisbane, as so were you, and the Wallabies put in a bit of a stinker and lost that game. They had a really good record at Suncop leading into that. Now, is it you or is it me? Who's the broken fan have, here? Look, I, sadly, I think it's any Aussie fan <laughs> that you turn up when we're going to lose. But look, I, I, I went to um, the third um, Lions test and we got smashed. And that was the only Lions test I went to. I went to two of the English series tests and we lost both of those. Um, I think I pretty much go to every game we lose. But also with the odds of how much we lose, I, I don't feel it's, you know, just on one of us. But, you yeah, know, I, I, if there is someone who goes to a lot of games and we tend to lose a lot, it's probably my fault. Yeah, I, I'm in that basket too. I think the only game from memory that I can think that we, the Wallabies have won where I've been there was Fiji, uh, Australia at the World Cup last year, uh, last World Cup. And I mean, we nearly lost that. Yep. Um, and then that game at Parramatta Stadium before the 2019 World Cup, which I think was against Tonga or Samoa, which if we had lost that, I think they would have sacked uh, Michael Checker on the day, on the spot, even though it was the last test before the World Cup. I'm pretty sure we lost to Samoa leading into 2015 World Cup anyway, so <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been out of character for us leading into oh, World dear. Cup. Uh, well, let's keep moving on. Um Harrison Dale, don't know who he is, um, never heard of him before, but <laughs> uh, is the Wallabies 2022 story all doom and gloom, bright sparks in the dark, or our year of salvation? Look, Shiplock, great question. 
Um, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I, I think the situations, if we look in broader context about not only 2022, but 2021, we've had a lot of injuries, which sets us back in terms of building our cohesion, but it means we have built a lot of depth and a lot of people you know, are, are filling roles that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. So when we do turn up at a World Cup, I'm expecting that you know next year is going to be devastated by injuries and devastated by head knocks, just if we look at how the game's been going in, in recent years. So we will have a very broad pool in comparison to what we would have had if we didn't have those injuries. And I, I think that's a positive. And, and we are having players sticking their hands up and we are finding answers to some of the questions, whether it be Parecki, you know, Quade Cooper, those sorts of things, even though 2022 has not maybe answered that uh, Quade <laughs> answer, that, that question. But Callaway at fullback, I think I there's some positives. Sorry? Kellaway at fullback's another one. Yep, Kellaway. And look, I mean, Paquetti stood up. You know, we've, we've got a, a number of answers that, you know, are, are starting to really firm themselves moving forward where, you know, 12 months ago, maybe we didn't have much of an answer and we, we seemed lost. Now we're confused, but we're not completely lost. I guess my saving grace is hoping that we've now had these injuries. We should hopefully have a good run leading into the World Cup when those injuries start to hit England and, and Scotland and Wales and South Africa, we'll have this Seems pool of players who've come through that and have been battle-hardened. So we'll be able to pull through and we'll have that rounded squad. That's my hope. I think another real real big positive from 2022 is the Australian A story. You know, we, we had a couple of tests earlier on in the year. Now we're having three tests, what shapes up to be probably the perfect time for us as well because it's for our Northern Hemisphere tour. If you asked any of us, you know, a couple of months ago, we would have said play midweek games, you know, sprinkle them between the the Wallowies matches. But now it gives players like Vunavalu potentially three test starts to go, you know what, I can put my hand up and take that Korobiti jersey when he's not there in that Northern Hemisphere uh, tour. So uh, I think there's, you know, those sorts of positives around as well. And uh, I think, yeah, it, there's not been all gloom. There's definitely not all doom. In gloom, there's some positives. I'll ask you a quick question. With the uh, Australia A Tour that is going to Japan in a few weeks, how many players yep. do you uh, forecast, and this is a prediction, will be picked in the Wallabies end-of-year spring tour from that Australia A program who aren't currently, you know, like Darcy Swain doesn't count, for example, who's a Wallabies player who's just being, or Suli Vunavali, for example, who's a Wallabies player who's getting game time in Australia A. How many bolters, I guess you'd call them then, from Australia A? Look, uh, yeah, the the clarity around the the bulk is probably the big thing. I I think we can definitely see one or two players break into that Wallaby squad. You know that we may not have seen there recently, or may not have had game time. I, I think then you throw in people like Frost and Vunavala and people that could have, you know, more breakout you know tours off off the back of this as well. So there's probably more those sorts of sorts of guys, but. Who sticks their hand up as the number six? Who sticks? Uh, is it Gleason? Who sticks their hand up on, on the wing and fullback? Do we see Jock Campbell just be so good, or you know, Beal? Or, I don't think Beal's going with him. Sorry, yeah, you know, Jock Campbell. Think, does he do yeah. enough at um fifteen to go? Geez, maybe we have to give him a crack and put Kellaway in the wing. And these questions now, I think, are louder than they were a week ago. So uh, there's definitely room for some of these players. I'll say, you know, two, two or three. There's definitely some room for them. Cool. All right. Let's keep moving because we have some more questions. 
Loosehead Greg on Twitter, how many dead rubber Bledisloes do there have to be before the head office? Geniuses introduce an annual best of one Bledisloe blockbuster. Look, I've got um, broader context around this. So yeah. if you look at the last 20-year run that we've had, um, if you look at how many times Australia have had an advantage, you know, three test series, you look at origin, you know, it, it's 50-50. So both teams have basically had, you know, 50-50 opportunities. If we look at that, ser- that series, you know, the bled is low over the, the 20 years, Australia have had two tests at home in a three-test series three times in 20 years. 13 times we've had two tests or four test series and three tests, you know, three years we've had um, the advantage to New Zealand, two, two tests there and one in Australia. So the, the format has been wrong for 20 years. Yep. You can't have 13 even test matches where we, we either have to win 100% of two tests or 75% of four tests against the All Blacks. No one does that. So, I mean, no one's done that in, you know, pretty much 20 years, maybe than Ireland other than Ireland when you spread them out over a number of years. So they're just ridiculous series. If, if we're doing a, a, a Bledisloe where it's multi-tests, it has to be three tests. You do two tests in New Zealand one year, two tests in Australia the, the following year, and you stick with that, and that doesn't change. You could have the odd year maybe that you have one test taken to Japan or Hong Kong or whatever you want, but four test series, two test series don't work. I'm happy for it to be a one test series and it's an Anzac Day match or something along those lines. But, geez, it just can't be two or four. Well, do you prefer then, out of the two models, would you have a one-off Bledisloe test that's outside of the rugby championship? So so you play that earlier in the year and then you play the rugby champs as its own thing? Or do you stick with the rugby champs format that we currently have, which is meant to be, you know, like the tours we've had with Argentina or, or South Africa, you go and play two tests there. The reason that it's split is because of Bledisloe. Do we just play it as one year, like you suggested, one year, two tests, Australia, next year, two tests, New Zealand? There's a, there's a real question mark there for me, and I, I don't think I have the, the right answer. I, I think in terms of marketability, I think a one-test match series at exact day weekend, you know, mid-Super Rugby, I don't care. Like, it's this big game. They can have Samoa, Tonga, Fiji having a match or something along that weekend as well for an Australian A or New Zealand Maori. I think you can make that a really big um, weekend and you fight for the Bledisloe there. And, you know, whether that's the, the sole match and that's the whole point, it's the Bledisloe match once a year and the other two counter rugby champs, I'd be fine with that, you know. And then we can go to you get your two two test tours throughout the rugby champs. But as I said, I'm, I'm not locked in one way or the other. But if it's going to be a single test match, it has to be a long way away from the rugby chance. It has to be, you know, Anzac Day or something along those lines. Interesting to see what happens. We do need to move on. Um, we do have a timer ticking, so let's keep going. Um, bring back VNRC on Twitter asks, or states, lack of Reds game on the Gold Coast sucks. Two in Townsville, he's referring to Super Rugby Pacific next year. Discuss, what are your thoughts around playing games on the Gold Coast, on the Gold Coast for the Queensland Reds? Look, I think the other part of that is the two tests in Townville. I think that's a real positive. You know, they've got a really good stadium. They, you know, had a Wallabies test match there. Or was it, you know, a couple of other rugby champs match, matches there and they sold out and had, you know, positive experience for, for everyone that turned up. So I think that's a real win for Queensland rugby. You're a Queensland team. You're not, you know, a Brisbane or a Gold Coast team. I think it is unfortunate for Gold Coast. Um, but... You know, you can you can drive to Brisbane. 
I just know, think is it an I, hour? I <laughs> yeah, it's about an hour. I've done it. it. It's. I think personally, it's. It's just that for whatever reason, they don't get much support on the Gold Coast. We played Wallabies tests yeah. there. No one came. So, yep. if you if there's no one going to show up for the Wallabies, I don't think they're going to show up for the Queensland Reds. Um, but maybe 2024, we'll see. Who knows? Uh, we will need to keep moving on. Uh, next question comes to us from Michael Tomlinson. Is Dan McKellar the issue with the Wallabies? Since he has joined the team full-time, our injuries have risen dramatically. Our inconsistency has increased, and we do not score a line-out slash more try for the rugby championship. Our more was consistently stopped when we scored off the edge. Also, our forwards' lack of support at the breakdown in both defence and attack is a major issue. I think it's also when Samu and McWright were on together, we gained ascendancy at the ruck. Um, any thoughts on that, Dan McKellar? Look, yeah, I don't, I don't think Dan McKellar is the issue. I think there's lots to it. Um, I think some positives, you know, in, in the lineouts, we, we've struggled with maybe having three lineout options at times in the last couple of weeks over the Berthesloe. Um, we also, at a point, had no hooker, and we still had really good structures and trick plays and things around that. Berthesloe won our lineout was brilliant for being a team that should nowhere near be as good as New Zealand. Um, and that was based off our trick plays and things that I, I expect Dan McKellar had a very big hand in. Um, no, you can't rely on that every week. Um, but I think that was a real positive that he brought in. Um, I, I do agree. The Samu McWright combo in the, the back row has been really good in the breakdown. But again, we've had a lot of injuries forced and uh, it's been very tricky, I think, you know, to have a consistent pick there for the, that three in the back row. I also think we've, we've seen um, a better performance from Jed Holloway at six than we have seen at four. I, he hasn't played. From memory, I don't think he played any game time for the Waratahs at, at second row this year. He was a six. Um, so it, it is a bit of a question as to why, like, obviously we want him on the field as a selection to be able to bring that physicality, but when we shift him to the second row, he isn't able to do that as much. Um, yeah, but we do need well, to keep I, moving. I think he gets away with... I think it gets away with being a second row at super rugby level in, in the Waratah structure. We were quite mobile and loose and you know, you're pairing him up with Hannigan and the, clearly the game plan is to be mobile and loose. But I, I think when it comes to test rugby, you need bigger bodies, you need more physical, tighter um, second rows. And it, it raises the question of when and how much do we get to see Skelton in the Northern Hemisphere Tour? Good question. Um, Tomato Lemons on Twitter. How much longer do we give Pattaya to bring the goods? Are we stuck with him this close to Rugby World Cup 2023? Is there someone we'd rather get a look at? Cough, Udavalu, cough. I think we get to see the chance of Malu, um, you know, in the, the back end of this year. And Pattaya really is slipping down the list for me in terms of how error-prone he is. I don't think he's a 13. I know other people said they think he can be. Um, he hasn't really solidified himself anywhere, and he doesn't have necessarily the versatility of someone like Hodge on the bench or you know, whether we throw it out to Beal or other people like that. So I think he is slipping down the list, to be honest. I think we've also, unfortunately, for Pattaya's development, we've butched it in, in regards. We've put him Plus on the wing. We've, yeah, with injuries as well, but his development in the last few years, we played him on the wing, then we played him in the centres, then now we're talking about playing him at fullback, and the poor guy doesn't know where he's meant to be playing. He doesn't know what he's meant to be doing, and he's yep. been thrown in off the bench, expected to have a real big impact and change the game in Wallaby's favour, when he's still only like 22-23. So it's I a think he... massive, massive... Um, job to ask him to do i think he needs maturity and i think he needs consistency in position and they're the two things that you can't rush maturity and he 
clearly, to be honest, doesn't have it. He's a talent, but I don't think he has the maturity at the moment. And last question comes to us from Param Sharma on Twitter. What is the mystery behind not playing Vunavalu and barely giving Tate McDermott a full 80 minutes? Um, Queensland suck at footy. It's something along those lines, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they didn't win um, one game against New Zealand last year, so do they deserve yeah, to be playing? exactly. But no, look, I, I think there's been other parts that have played a role in that. I, I think Vunavalu, they, they talk about being quite a bad trainer and Rennie really likes someone who's very good at training. Your perfect example is Corabidi. And I think Vunavalu is very much on the flip side in terms of, you know, fits and things like that from all reports at training, although he's genetically a freak and a massive talent. Tate McDermott's another tricky one. Um, I, I think, you know, Foley coming in, they wanted to have a balance with Gordon and some experience there. And I think that's a negative maybe for Tate McDermott, but I, I'd definitely more Tate moving forward. I just also think on that Tate that he doesn't have the combinations with the centres without Hunter Paisami there that potentially we don't see him have that um, that gel. We are running out of time though, so let's uh, let's call it there. Thank you so much, Nelson, for your time this evening. If there's anyone out there that wants to hear more of you or find out more about you, where can they find you? Uh, mate, pretty much on every second Australian rugby Twitter account. <laughs> um, the draft rugby is probably a good one to find me or Nelson H. Dale on Twitter. Uh, I'm very vocal on there, so come have a chat. Send me a message. I'm more than likely two year off. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me this evening. Ando is away. Um, it's been good to, to sort of just chat footy and, and not have Ando sort of shivling us along as, as he sometimes does. But um, it's been fun. Thank you. No problem. All right. Thanks, everyone, for getting to this point in the pod. Um, thank you for listening. We'll hopefully be back next week with uh, we might do a rugby championship wrap up, but I do need to talk to Ando about that. But it's out there now, so it looks like we're doing it. Uh, but yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye.